in the search for truth. You're gonna have to deal access to justice and love. So listen up for Callcast. It's logical coming at you with the Callcast. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the relaunch of Logical's podcast, Cullcast, where we feature conversations with legal influencers and innovators. I'm Casey Sullivan of Logical.com, and today we're going to be talking to Keith Watley, who's the founder and executive director of Uncommon Law. Now, if you follow Logical, you know one of the things that we like to talk about a lot is democratizing discovery. To us, that means making a process that's often difficult, expensive, risky, something that is simple, powerful, and available to pretty much anyone instantly. So... Part of that means supporting pro bono and public interest work. But we're not here to talk about what Logical does today. We're here to look at the work of Uncommon Law. Now, Uncommon Law is a small nonprofit law firm based out of Oakland, California, that provides legal services to prisoners facing life with the possibility of parole. In the past 11 years, Uncommon Law has worked with dozens of prisoners to get them out of prison and back into society. It's closer to therapy than it is uh, lawyering that we do. That's Keith Watley, the executive director of Uncommon Law. I sat down with Keith recently to discuss his work. I have been an attorney for, let's see, about 19 years now. Keith was already working in criminal justice and prisoners' rights before founding Uncommon Law. At a nonprofit called the Prison Law Office. And there I was involved in some of the class action litigation that involved uh, reviewing um, a lot of files, meeting with a lot of clients and and also touring the prisons to identify problems with their provision of mental health care. That was my main responsibility there. And while doing that, I often would encounter people who were in a a mental health crisis who usually hadn't received the level of treatment they needed. And I, I might meet with them and talk to them for a few minutes and go back and write a report about what I found and what seemed to be missing and make some recommendations perhaps. And over time, that report might get incorporated in a court order someday, somewhere, many months later. In the meantime, that person is still there, and I I would sort of be left with this sense that I hadn't done enough for him or her. And while that was a really important, um, absolutely necessary systemic change work, um, I also needed something that was gave me a more immediate connection to the the, um, benefit to an individual client. Keith found that connection one day after receiving a letter from an inmate. As I was uh, reviewing the mail and found a client serving a life sentence had written to the office saying, I need help with this facing the parole board, and they're trying to take away a parole date they gave me. And and I said, well, that seems interesting. Let me see um, what I can learn about this case. Maybe the client, maybe this person did something wrong to jeopardize his release and... and um, Turned out he hadn't. They were just going to reconsider their decision, and it seemed unfair to me. And I started working with him and represented him in this hearing. And he was able to keep his parole date and went home, and I got to see the things that he got to do after that. Uh, He got a good job and got married, had a kid, and um, finished college. And I said, there's a direct connection, obviously, between my efforts and, and his future. And I was hooked from then. So um, I, a couple years later, started... Uncommon Law. That was 2006 that I started it and been doing it ever since. All right, so how does Uncommon Law come together with Logical? Uh, Logical f- co-founder and CEO Andy Wilson explains the beginning of this relationship. 
We got involved with Keith at Uncommon Law maybe five or six years ago. My sister-in-law was working at the uh, prison law office. So uh, I, I learned uh, what Keith was doing at Uncommon Law, and that, that initial meeting made me realize there could be an opportunity to help him. Like everyone else, nonprofits like Uncommon Law are facing a vast growth in information and data that can sometimes be hard to handle. The amount of information that he was getting for, I guess, it's got quasi-discovery, right? Like trying to get these, these people out of prison um, was, was mostly paper, but it started to become more and more electronic. Information should not put you at a disadvantage. And with all this information exploding, you know, more emails and text messages and photos, and I mean, now there's drone data and home data, you know, all this information is, is exploding, but the deadlines aren't really changing for these people. And so somebody like Uncommon Law, who's a nonprofit that doesn't have a lot of resources, is uh, starting to get bombarded with more and more information, which if it takes them too long to go through that information, it's going to drag out the judicial process. Um, and then it, in his case, it's going to keep people that shouldn't be in prison longer than, than they need to. All right, so what does the work that Uncommon Law does actually look like? What's a typical matter like? Let's see. So a typical case that we might have would be someone who, a family member contacts us to say, my son is um, going to be eligible for parole next year, and we want someone to represent him. We'll figure out whether we can actually help him, whether we have the resources and time, et cetera. And then, if so, we'll start working by doing an initial meeting just to figure out how, how much work they've been doing since they've been in prison to get ready for a parole hearing. And sometimes that depends on the prison they're housed in. Some prisons have a lot more access to programs that will give them the tools to, to understand themselves and to be able to explain that to the parole board. Uh, some prisons have almost none of those kind of programs. So we need to figure out where the client is and figure out what the game plan is going to be. But after that, we'll meet with the client for anywhere from three or four or five times to eight, 10, 12 times um, between that first meeting and their actual hearing until they're ready. Ready means they understand all the various factors that contributed to them committing this crime and that they've spent their time in prison addressing those factors so that they can then map out a, a, a plan going forward uh, upon their release that they can stay on the right path. Most of the work is in the intervening year or so. It's in prison visiting rooms, sitting across the table from the client for a couple of hours each time. We help them figure out those things. Usually those, are, those factors are, are rooted in their childhood and upbringing and those kind of things. And we have to make sure they can identify that and, and structure a set of uh, programs in prison that have them address that. And sometimes it takes a lot longer than a year. Sometimes we get them ready for that parole hearing, but it's not ready enough for the parole board. And they say, well, we see you and we find you're not yet suitable for parole. Um, we'll deny you and we'll see you again. So sometimes it may take another year and a half, may take three years, may take five years later before we get another chance. In the meantime, we continue to work with them and get them ready. And when it works out, they're granted parole. And a few months later, if the governor okays it, then they get to go home and rejoin their families. Well, there's 35,000 inmates in the California prison system on life sentences. It's incredibly expensive to keep people in prison. 
And Keith has gotten out over a couple decades, less than 200 people. And that's, it's a pretty big savings, right? It's, you know, millions of dollars in savings for, uh, uh, for the state, but there's 35,000 people there. And of course, some of them should stay in prison because they're really bad, uh, people. Uh, but that I don't think is the majority. The faster we can get those people out of prison and back into, uh, their communities and functioning in a positive way, you know, the more, I mean, it's, it's, it's a win-win. So we've worked with a number of um, volunteer attorneys, social workers, a bunch of law students. We have a program we work with law students, about a dozen every year. So we tend to, we handle about 60 or 70 individual parole hearings every year, plus um, a bunch of cases in court for those serving life sentences. So what are some of the barriers that impact the work that you're doing, your clients, your organization? One of the biggest barriers we find is that there's um, we see it as a, a, a false dichotomy between people who were convicted of serious or violent crimes and those who are convicted of nonviolent crimes, like drug crimes or pro- property crimes. And I say it's a false dichotomy because from what I see, having worked with a lot of uh, individuals of all different kinds of crimes, is there's so many similarities, some, so many patterns that tend to repeat themselves and within both of those groups that it's really hard to say one is really different from the other. But it's been um, a matter of convenience, I think, for um, policymakers and even advocates to say, let's focus on these crimes that most people would agree shouldn't result in someone going to prison. Someone who's a drug addict, for example, shouldn't get a life sentence in prison. Or someone who steals, you know, videotapes from Kmart shouldn't get a life sentence. Most of us can agree on that. Let's focus on that because that gets a lot of people, you know, out of prison or some some way to get out of prison. But the people left behind often lived lived a very similar lifestyle, were motivated by the same kind of things, but they they basically had that worst case scenario drug deal that really went bad. And here they are in prison for a violent crime or a serious crime. The challenge is having the broader public and even the parole board understand that these are folks that also deserve an opportunity to get themselves out of prison. And of all the work that you've done over the years, what is one thing that you are most proud of? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. I, 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 it's probably impossible to single out one thing. Um, but I, among my favorite moments... I would say there's a client who um, I spent some time with in preparation for his parole hearing. And early on in the representation, I detected there was something um, missing in in his understanding of what was happening and our conversations and, and what the process was about. We had a psychologist go meet with him, and the psychologist came back and quickly said, your client suffered a series of traumatic incidents as a kid in which he was either directly battered or um, he fell and, and hit his head several times. And throughout his childhood, he, he had a lot of difficulty. And by the time he was in prison, and he went to prison at age 19 uh, in, a, in a drug deal that went bad, uh, he had never learned to read or write. But he'd also become expert at masking the fact he didn't know how to read or write. So he got to prison and was able to uh, follow other people, pick up on cues and clues, and, and stay under the radar. But the, as the psychologist was explaining to me, this has hurt him because now the parole board 
is expecting him to articulate this really high level of insight into himself and the factors that contribute to his crime. And he's not able to do that. And so I went back and met with him and we recognized that this was this was something that he'd been masking for a long time and he needed to own up to it in order to get the help that he needs. Because if you identify that you have certain uh, difficulties, then the prison is supposed to provide some accommodation. Um, they don't always do that and they don't usually do that, in fact. But his parole hearing came up. Uh, he did a fine job, mostly just admitting the challenges that he had. The fact that he had um, he had been masking these these difficulties for years, and they they denied him parole. And at that point, he uh, you know we came out of the hearing and he said he thanked me profusely really, and and he said you know I really have to thank you because before you sent that psychologist to see me, I thought I was just stupid, but now I understand there's actually something wrong, something that happened that I can get help for. He'd been in prison for 30 years, 30 years. And he finally had this sort of affirmation that there's something you can get help for. You can actually get yourself out of prison, acknowledge you need help, and you can get it. And he, he finally went home. He went home about a year ago, actually. But even before he was released on parole, that was one of my greatest victories, just because we were able to get him some resources to to give him some sense that he's an okay person, that 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 he's a human being that can get help, can get himself out of prison. So that definitely ranks up there. We'd like to thank Keith for talking to us today and everyone at Uncommon Law for the work that they do. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Uncommon Law, you can visit their website at uncommonlaw.org. That's uncommonlaw.org. And of course, to stay up with the latest legal, technology, and e-discovery news, podcasts, and interviews like this, Sign up for Logical's blog at blog.logical.com. I'm Casey Sullivan. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to hear from you soon.